Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. We have a special episode for you today. We talk about current issues, and we've got some real current topics. We're recording on January 25th, just five days into President Joe Biden's term in office. And I think regardless of political affiliations, we can all agree uh, that President Biden has a lot of difficult work ahead of him. Uh, Jobless claims remain higher than before the pandemic, with almost a million people filing unemployment benefits last week, higher than any time uh, since the recession of 1967. We're making some progress on the COVID-19 pandemic, and 19 million doses have been administered. Obviously, President Biden's announced a goal of 100 million in 100 days. However, we continue to see new cases high above what we saw in the fall. We have a new contagious strain, and we're expecting deaths to hit the half million mark in the next month. And while tensions may have eased a little bit uh, since last summer's protest and the recent uh, storming of the Capitol steps, it does seem clear we're in a deeply divided country. And this means that there's a lot of work to be done in Washington and in state capitals around the country. And as businesses and as in-house counsel, that's one of the things we need to watch in terms of what's going to happen on that political scene as it changes. Uh, I'm excited to introduce our newest partner at Womble, Bond Dickinson. Angel Tavares joined us uh, just last week, and he has come from little-known schools like Harvard and Georgetown. He also served four years as the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island in 2011 to 2015 before going into private practice. He does a lot of work representing government entities and advising businesses on government relations. Uh, Given his knowledge of how government works, I thought he'd be the perfect person to introduce you to this morning and get some thoughts on the Biden administration. Angel, really excited to have you today and also welcome to Womble Bond Dickinson. Well, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk with you, though I have to tell you after you talked about the challenges that the uh, Biden administration is facing, uh, I started to almost sweat there because uh, it's a long list. There's a lot going on. Uh, It's challenging times. And uh, I'm happy to see the new administration taking shape and President Biden taking the lead because I I do believe that uh, he's up to the challenge. But boy, there are many of them. Yeah, no, I think it's a tall, it's a tall order. Anytime there's a transition from one party to another, there's going to be some changes, but we are in a, in a precarious moment. Um, transition was certainly unlike any other transition, that's for sure. That, that, absolutely true. You know, where where the big fight is whether they will acknowledge the incoming president as the new president, uh, you know that we're in uncharted waters. Give us your sense of what to look for as we get the administration coming on board and that relationship with Congress. I mean, traditionally, people have talked about honeymoon periods. I know presidents try to do a lot in that first hundred days. There's this sense of momentum and goodwill. I've I've heard some people say they're not sure that there's going to be any honeymoon uh, period this time. What's your sense and what should, if I'm an in-house counsel trying to advise my company, what's your sense of how things may pan out over the next several months? Sure. Well, first of all, I think that it helps that President Biden spent so much time in the Senate. He's a creature of the Senate. He knows the Senate. He has a lot of relationships there. Uh, He worked with them when he was vice president as well. So I think that uh, there's a familiarity there that will be helpful. I think the other thing that the president has done is he's assembling a really experienced 
team and getting excellent people around him who have tremendous experience from the um, Secretary of the Treasury, well, soon to be, I believe she's going to be confirmed as we record this on a Monday. She will be confirmed today, uh, Janet Yellen, um, to his chief of staff, Ron Klain, uh, people who have vast experience in Washington and uh, in around the world, quite frankly. Uh, I think that's helpful as well. I think the other thing that will be helpful is that um, I think that there's going to be more respect, certainly from the executive branch toward the legislative branch than we've had in the last four years. And so um, that's conducive to more productive relationship. Um, It will be interesting to see exactly how Republicans respond to President Biden. As you know, there were over 100 something um, Republicans in the House who contested his election, even after uh, the insurrection of January 6th. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. And they're right now working on a stimulus package, a COVID relief package. And it's going to be interesting to see if the president can, in fact, get Republican support for some of the uh, some of the provisions. You know, when President Obama came in and had the Recovery Act in 2009, he had zero votes in the House, and I think he had three in the Senate. And so, you know, it's it's a, it's going to be a challenge um, overall. The, the President Biden has talked a lot about unity and uh, bipartisanship. I think look, fantastic goals. But, you know, you can only, you know, it takes two to dance. And so we need to make sure that uh, Republicans are interested in doing that as well. So we're going to see what happens there. No, I agree. I do think it'll be interesting, you know, and he clearly wants bipartisan support. You know, I've heard there's bipartisan support on a number of components of his $1.9 trillion package, particularly perhaps around some of the vaccination funds and other items, but but considerable pushback on other items like minimum wage and some of the bigger spending things, even things like the additional 1,400 individual checks going out, which is something that obviously President Trump and some Republican senators supported. You know, I think there is resistance uh, among a number of Republicans to those. So it will be interesting to see whether the big package goes forward or whether they start breaking it up into a lot of smaller pieces, you know, with the goal of getting at least bipartisan support on, on some of them. Well, I think that people can expect there will be some relief coming forth. Uh, the question is the size of that relief. And I think that President Biden has to make sure that it is sufficient to address the crisis that we face. And, um, and, and he should try to get Republicans to come along, work with them to the extent that he possibly can. I'm sure he will. I think the other he has, a, I think, in my opinion, a, an easy test um, right after that to see if there will be really bipartisanship. And that'll be infrastructure. And whether or not um, we can pass an infrastructure bill to address our infrastructure across the country. We've heard a lot from uh, Republicans on that and Democrats as well over the years. Um, This should be that infrastructure. If we can't pass a bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill, I think it uh, really indicates that we are really totally, totally divided because that should be something we can agree on. Certainly uh, the the principles around an infrastructure bill. And I think that's something that could impact uh, 
our folks and uh, clients and people all around the country. Uh, but I, I do hope to see, I, I think you will see an infrastructure bill. I, I don't know the, the scope of it or the details of it, but I have no doubt that President Biden and his team will be pushing for infrastructure and hopefully be able to get some help on, on that from Republicans as well. Now, that makes sense. And I know a lot of people think roads and bridges when you hear infrastructure, but there's actually other components as well. What what kind of things? I know we don't know exactly what that bill will look like, but do you have a sense based on other proposals, what, what type of things folks should be looking for on the infrastructure front? Well, I think you're right. First of all, roads and bridges um, certainly are um, meat and potatoes, so to speak, of infrastructure. But I think you're talking about airports. I think you're talking about school buildings. I think you're talking about really preparing um, in terms of the communications, uh, 5G and, and helping to spread that across the, the country. Um, so I think you're talking about a wide range of infrastructure from roads, bridges, airports, school buildings, Wi-Fi, um, everything that um, really can prepare our country for the next several decades. And we, it, it's time because uh, the so much of our infrastructure, I mean, I think you're talking about water, uh, for example. You saw what happened in Flint, Michigan, and the issue with water um, across our country. I think you're going to see that as well. So we have an opportunity, I think, to help prepare our country um, for the next generation and should really do that now it also get a lot of people back to work which i think is helpful and and it's also helpful throughout the economy i mean the the great thing about infrastructure is it helps everyone from the engineer um you know the architect the planners to the line people who are out there pouring the concrete that's something that's important as well so i expect that you'll see that coming forth relatively soon And uh, I look forward to it because we're in need of it. And uh, we've been waiting for a while. No, I agree. I agree. And the one other thing, you know, goes, you mentioned communications. I know our communications team in D.C. is working a lot on the rural broadband. And there seems to be some bipartisan support for that as well. You know, rural areas, obviously, traditionally redder, more Republican areas. uh, But that's an area where we've certainly seen dependency on high-speed Internet as being a key thing, both to work and do school and banking in a time like a pandemic. And that may be another area where we can you know, see some bipartisan support for funding to expand and improve some of that that, inter- you know, that internet access. It'll be a good test for it, right? It'll be a good test because if you can't get bipartisan support for that, then I'm not certain that you're going to be able to get bipartisan support for anything. So I think it'll be a good test um, to see just how far Republicans want to work with the new president and the Democrats to move our country forward. Um, and I'm hopeful that we're going to have uh, a lot of people come forward and say, yeah, this is in the best interest of our country and we should uh, we should support it. Totally agree. I wanted to follow up on something you mentioned. You talked about being impressed with the team that President Biden had put together. Um, can you share a little with our listeners about some of the people and experience um, that he's got at the various you know, cabinet level posts or other, other people high up in the administration? Sure. I mean, you know, I'm I'm fortunate in the sense of I know some of the uh, soon-to-be cabinet members, and and I know of some of the other ones. So, you know, uh, uh, Ron Klain, I, I don't know, but I I know of him, and uh, I think he is uh, very very well prepared to be chief of staff and to really control the the messaging and and uh, the team at the White House. So I think that that's great. And the same with uh, I don't know the Treasury Secretary uh, Yellen, 
Um, certainly have heard of her, obviously, with all her work, uh, the Fed and everything else that she's done. Um, Secretary of State Blinken, who uh, I've heard a lot of. Um, I'm fortunate um, to have had a chance to to meet and know um, the uh, soon-to-be Secretary of Transportation, Mayor Pete. Um, I don't know if he's going to go by Mayor Pete once he's Secretary. <laughs> But um, but I like I've heard, I like it's, I've heard it's Pete Commuter Judge now. <laughs> oh, good. good. Um, so I, I'm really looking I'm really looking forward to that at transportation, and I think transportation is going to be so key to the future, especially around infrastructure. So I think he's got he's got a, a really important role. Um, obviously, my governor uh, Governor Raimondo has been nominated to be Secretary of Commerce. Um, her we we're recording on a Monday. Her confirmation hearing or at least she's going before the panel and the Senate on the Tuesday, tomorrow. Um, I've wished her well, and I think she's going to do an extraordinary job at Commerce and is very, very well prepared for that based on her prior experience. Um, so uh, Commerce, I think, is going to be very important as we get our economy back going again. And also, I look at Commerce as really not just not just the, the United States, but really internationally, and I think that she's just well poised to lead that department, and I have no doubt we'll do an outstanding job. Um, my friend, um, and any sense before we any sense of what type of things we might see out of a commerce department under Governor Raimondo's leadership? I mean, in terms of priorities or things that that our folks listening might want to be thinking about. Well, I don't think that this is directly under her department, but I have no doubt that she will be very supportive of of infrastructure as she has been here in Rhode Island. And she also understands that part of building business is having the infrastructure to do it. And um, so I think that you can expect that. I think you can expect um, her uh, to be focused on bringing business into the United States. So I think you can expect that there will be an international reach uh, from commerce that extends beyond our borders. I think you can certainly uh, expect that. I think you can also expect more in terms of technology um, and focusing on technology and the uh, growth in technology and the opportunities there. Um, the other thing I think you can very much expect because of her experience as a venture capitalist is focusing on uh, startups and new businesses um, and how we can help them grow um, and develop. Um, what is the next big thing and how can we be supportive of that? So I, I would expect those things. I mean, you know, uh, just to make sure the listeners know, while I'm very friendly with the governor, I have not spoken to her about her priorities as commerce secretary. So I'm totally speculating uh, based on my my experience here in Rhode Island. Um, so I don't want anyone to think I'm speaking for her, but that's what I would expect. And uh, one nice thing about this is that uh, now we're going to find out. So we'll uh, maybe I'll come back <laughs> in a little while and and tell you where I was right, where I was wrong. <laughs> but but I think um, I think that folks in the business community will find a very friendly voice. And Governor Raimondo, I assume she will be confirmed. Uh, all indications are that she will be, so she'll be secretary soon. And I think that she will leave uh, the Commerce Department and our country better off. I have no doubt about that. And, and I was going to say the other person that um, I'm excited to see is Mayor Walsh um, from Boston, who has been nominated to be the Secretary of Labor. And uh, I look forward to, to seeing his work at, at Labor he has been a supporter of labor all of his life, and I think that you're going to see that in labor as well. So it will be interesting to, to see him there, but I have no doubt he's going to do an outstanding job as well and wish him the very, very best. 
That's great. Uh, obviously, you were a mayor. You know, we just talked about Mayor Walsh. We got Mayor Pete. I- I'm interested as someone that spent four years as a mayor, maybe sharing a little bit of that perspective on how you might view government and its role having served as a mayor. I mean, that, that's something, you know, maybe just share that perspective. What what kind of things do you grapple with? Because obviously, in some way, I mean, there's this thing, all politics is local. Obviously, as a mayor, you're dealing with a lot of those those day-to-day issues. So I think it gives you a certain political perspective that may be different from even someone like Joe Biden, who's only served in the federal government only that time. So I'm interested in you well, sharing that viewpoint. Well, I, being mayor is, um, was a wonderful job and a wonderful opportunity and tremendous honor. Um, I think that people don't realize how close you are to the mayor because what the mayor does in many ways impacts your daily life. What I mean by that is from the potholes that will impact you. And, you know, unless you're traveling by, you know, helicopter, you know, everyone travels on our roads, right? So the potholes impact you to picking up the trash, cleaning up, uh, plowing the snow, cleaning off streets, you know, public safety, public education, everything um, impacts your your daily life in, in different ways. So that's the first thing. And the mayor is politician that um, or elected official that most people can identify. They may not be able to identify their congressman, the state senator, state rep, maybe the U.S. senator. They might be able to identify, but the mayor, they do because the mayor is very involved in the activities of what's going on in uh, in the city. The other thing about mayors, we got to get things done. That's, you know, it's really, uh, there's not a Republican and a Democratic way of uh, fixing a pothole. You got to get it done. And that's what people remember. You know, I always used to say with our snow budget, you know, we uh, get a lot of snow. I wasn't worried what the snow budget was. I was worried about making sure we plowed the snow because what people would remember is that they were either able to get out or they weren't able to get out during the snowstorm. In the grand scheme of things, they don't worry that you were over budget by 10% on the snow plowing budget or this, that, the other. What they remember is you either did a good job or you didn't do it. Um, so that's the other aspect is that. And I think that, you know, what you're seeing is uh, mayors have become more and more active and taken up the mantle of leadership um, when needed. You saw that with the Paris Climate Accords with the previous administration signed out that so many mayors across the country, many led by former Mayor Bloomberg, in New York, who not only uh, led, but put a lot of money toward it as well um, to step up and uh, step forward. But the, the thing about being a mayor is that, you know, what you do has a real impact on people's lives. You might be in the in the Congress and respectfully, you know, if you ask a lot of people like, you know, what did the congressperson do? They may not know what legislation they've supported, what they've done overall, the, the type of impact. It's just a little bit more remote for lack of a better word. But but the mayor, um, the mayor opened up that park. The mayor paved that road. Um, the mayor got me trash cans that I needed for the recycling. I've done all those things. And it's it's amazing the impact that you can have and the feeling that people have overall and how recognizable. I've been out of office now six years. And even with my mask on, People recognize me, which is <laughs> I, they which still is want you to fix potholes, right? <laughs> well, you know, I ran into someone the other day and she was complaining to me about something. And I said to her, thank you. I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm sorry. You do realize I'm the former mayor, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and I and I let her know where to complain to, to the current mayor. And so it's, it's interesting in that sense. But being a mayor, you're very um, you deal with your constituents every day, right? You talk with them every day. Um, you run into them every day and you hear when you're doing a good job and you hear when they're not happy with you too. 
um, when you're in Congress or in the state Senate, state legislature, well, you can deal with your constituents every day, certainly in the state legislature, but many of them don't know who you are. And so you can kind of go to dinner or, or do different things and not not, uh, not be recognized. Um, as I said, I, I'm recognized six years after the fact, even with a mask on. So fortunately, uh, it's almost universally uh, very, very positive. So that's helpful. But um, I think the reason you're seeing some of the mayors involved in some of the leadership positions is because they know how to get things done. And I think one of the things that people want now in, in Washington and across our country is for us to make progress and to get things done. And I think that um, we're going to see more of that uh, moving forward. It's funny you say that about mayor being a mayor because um, I was a reporter for about 10 years and, and covered a, a lot of local government and I was just telling my wife uh, here probably um it was fairly recent because it was, we were talking about president, former president Obama. And I was telling her, there's something about being president and something about being mayor that those two elected roles, I think more than any others, folks look at you and go, well, no, you're, I don't care if you're not in office anymore. You're still responsible for things. Like I'm still like, I'm still going to look to you to be like, okay, that's great that you're not in office anymore. And you're not mayor. Still, I you have something. So you are the mayor. So <laughs> help me out with this, because. And I think that that's true for 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 the mayor, less than the uh, even the governor. I think the mayor and president, for some reason, we still kind of like. Yeah, I know you're not in office anymore, but I, I still got an issue. I think you need to help me with it. No, no doubt. I mean, that's and the, that's one thing that people don't realize is that for the most part. Uh, people just want uh, government to do their job and to uh, help make their lives a little bit easier uh, on some of the things that they can't control, right? We, you know, we can't, you know, citizens can't necessarily pave a street. The citizens can't take care of the garbage pickup or the snow plowing, all of those things. I mean, you can do your sidewalk, but it's hard to plow the streets, right? And so I think mayors are definitely seen as that way. And I, one thing I, I like to say as well, I said this to my predecessor in a memo that uh, he released part of it. And I said, you know, sometimes as mayor, all you have to do is show up and you can make a difference just being there, right? And being supportive. And that's unique because as lawyers, we can't just show up, right? We, we've got to be prepared. We've got to be ready. We've got to go um, do that. There's, there's a role for us to play. We have to advocate. Sometimes as mayor, your job is to show up and to console, to be supportive, um, to let people know that you care. And I have people who have told me, now, years after being out of office, you know, how much they appreciated something that I did. And I'm grateful that, you know, that you can make a difference just with your presence sometimes. And I think the president, the one, one comparison I would make, the president does it as consoler in chief, right? And you've seen that happen, unfortunately, too often. But um, how the difference that that makes overall. And so, yeah, I, th- there's that, that comparison that I certainly would make. But no, it's it's a great it's a great job, uh, and it was a the honor of my life. I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity, uh, and I'm glad that people are still so uh, kind to me now, years after uh, being in the mayor's office. Right, Angel. One other topic I wanted to chat about uh, is elections. Obviously, this year we've really seen an unprecedented attack on on elections. I've served for a number of years as a chief precinct judge myself. So, you know, I masked up for 16 hours and worked, uh, you know, as chief judge of a local precinct here and, you know, was very impressed by 
the security of the election, the fairness of the election, making sure every vote, you know, was appropriate and appropriately counted. And I think that happened, you know, across the country. I know you've been involved as a lawyer um, doing some work representing the Rhode Island Secretary of State on some post-COVID changes in mail-in balloting. And I just wanted to see if you could share a little bit about that work, because I do think this is a an area where the number of legal challenges we saw to the election changes is, you know, is really growing and something I think is still on the minds of a lot of people around election security, election fraud. Um, let me first th- start by using the words of Chris Krebs, who is one of our, was recently worked for the U.S. government and, or was fired. Um, this was the most secure election I think he said in, in the history of the United States. Um, and his job, by the way, is encompasses a lot of cybersecurity, encompasses a lot of work um, that goes into election security. And I want people to know that this was a very secure election and there's absolutely no evidence of any widespread fraud or anything like that. In fact, there were over 60 cases that were filed by the former president and or his allies, um, and they essentially won none of them. So they had the opportunity to go to court, present evidence. Um, They appealed cases. They went to Supreme Court on cases. And I want to make sure that people understand that because I've seen polling that indicates that there's a lot of doubts about the election. And that's unfortunate because um, I don't know, you know, uh, how you prove you know, there's no evidence of it. Okay, so how do you want me to prove that it was, in fact, a secure election? Um, usually, it's it's your job to prove that it wasn't, right? So, so people have this belief. They don't have evidence, but they have a belief. And it's unfortunate that it was a lot of that came from our prior White House. Um, I've worked with the Secretary of State now for over six years um, as her legal counsel. I had the opportunity to represent her in a case that ultimately went up to the U.S. Supreme Court um, regarding uh, whether or not mail ballots in Rhode Island needed to have two witnesses or a notary public. And we had suspended that through an executive order of the governor in June for the presidential preference primary. And ultimately, the secretary wanted to suspend it for September and November for the statewide primary and the November general election and wasn't able to do that legislatively, uh, but was sued um, by the ACLU and League of Women Voters. And ultimately we worked out a consent judgment that uh, essentially did that, uh, but was challenged by the Republican National Committee. And um, the U.S. District Court judge in Rhode Island ruled in our favor. The First Circuit, uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit ruled in our favor and issued a lengthy decision relative to that. And then they appealed it to the United States Supreme Court, where by six to three vote, um, they denied their appeal, their application for a stay. And uh, by six to three vote and explained why in a very short order. Typically, they don't explain why they typically just deny it. And uh, it's a very one sentence order. But in our case, they didn't do that. And as a result of that, more and more people voted by mail because it was easier to vote by mail. Um, And one thing I want people to know who are listening out there, voting by mail, (laughs) there's a lot of safeguards. First of all, you got to be a registered voter. Second of all, your signature on the application, you have to apply. 
Your signature on the application has to be verified to be your signature. And there's a signature on file for you because you had to sign when you first registered to vote. Then when you get the mail ballot and you actually uh, take that and put it in an envelope and you put that envelope in another envelope because you want to have privacy, there's a signature on that envelope. That also um, needs to be verified as well. And so, and the other thing is that the process for the verification of the mail ballots in Rhode Island, and I'm sure across the country, is a public, public meeting. And in Rhode Island, and I'm sure across the country, um, representatives of candidates, representatives of political parties, not only do they have to have notice that it's going on, they have the ability to be there and to object to any of the mail ballots as well. Okay, so they have an opportunity to be there, be present, to observe, and object. And so, you know, I want people to know that because they talk about the signatures aren't matching or this, that, the other. Well, in Rhode Island, if the signatures didn't match, the mail ballot was not counted. Now, I do know that the quads of canvassers would reach out to someone and would say, hey, there's an issue here. We need verification. And so they get verification of it. But that's what happened in Rhode Island, and I'm sure that's what happened across the country. Um, so uh, this whole thing of that there's fraud or or anything else, I mean, there's a lot of guidelines in terms of the mail ballots and an opportunity to be heard, to be present, to object. And so, you know, people are saying that there's fraud without presenting evidence of it. If they had evidence, they would have presented it. So I want people to know that um, no election is perfect, by the way. There's always issues here or there. That's that's just human nature. You, you have so much going on. Um, but there's no doubt that um, this was a record election in terms of turnout. Um, and people turned out to vote um, in record numbers and that we have had really no indication of any widespread fraud anywhere. And believe me, if there were some, they would have found it by now because um, we had the previous administration with the Department of Justice, with U.S. attorneys, with everybody focusing in on this. And yet, uh, we really have seen no indication of any widespread fraud. Yeah, no, thank. I think that's an important reminder for our listeners. And I, and I want to reach out and thank the various boards of elections, the secretaries of state. You know, we've, we've had secretaries of state of both parties, you know, close by in Georgia to Arizona to other places, standing by the process, standing by the integrity of the vote, whichever way it came out. And I think that is a testament to our system. People work hard to verify it. That certification process doesn't get much attention in most things. You know, we, we read the, election night returns and assume it's done, but there's a pretty detailed process to verify every vote, check provisionals, check the mail-ins, um, and have it certified at various levels. And I think that's a process that works. And we've got a lot of dedicated folks of both parties working to make sure that that happens. Wade. And Mark, Mark, let me just add one thing, because I think you hit it really, um, something that's really important. And that is, we should be so grateful and thankful for all of the men and women across this country who took time in a pandemic to go to a polling place, to stay there all day, to make sure that people have the ability to exercise their constitutional right to vote. In the middle of a pandemic, 
we had record numbers of people who voted and people who dedicated themselves to making sure that that happened. Um, it's just outstanding when you think about it. And so the, they're really true heroes, the, the people, the, all of the, the election workers, many of whose names, uh, whose names we'll never know, um, who spent the day making sure those polling places were open and those ballots were there and that people could cast their ballots. And the other thing I would say to anyone who had any doubt, who has any doubt about all this stuff, Almost all across this country, we have paper ballots. We have paper ballots that are marked. We have paper ballots that can be recounted, that can be looked at. And in many states like Georgia, like Rhode Island and other places, they're audited to make sure that whatever the machine says matches the paper ballots. The other nice thing about the paper ballots is you know how many you have and you know how many people signed in. So you can compare the number of ballots and the number of people who signed in. Again, if there was a big discrepancy, do you not think you would have heard about it? It's not that difficult to figure out in that sense. So um, I want to say that that's the other aspect as well, that people who have some doubts about the security of the election know that uh, we can verify it, can verify it through all the paper ballots and compare them to the uh, to the machine counts. And they did that in Georgia. And you saw that there really was no difference. So, but thank you to all the men and women out there who uh, really made this election season a success and who also stood up in the face of tremendous pressure, stood up for our country and for our constitution. No, I, I, I certainly join you in those things. I wanted to wrap up with a little more of a personal question for you, Angel. I know changing law firms or changing companies for our in-house listeners is a big career decision. Uh, that's particularly true during a pandemic where you can't do the normal face-to-face in-person interviews and, and decide what to do. I, I just wanted to see if you could share a little bit about your decision to move to Wombleban Dickinson and how that came about, how it worked trying to make that move in, you know, in these unusual times. Well, there's no doubt it's unusual times. That, that's true. But for me, um, this is an interesting time for me. I mean, I turned 50 last year, and I think that kind of gives you a chance to reassess, to look at what you've done and what you like to do and how fortunate you are. And um, what excites me about Womble Bond um, is its history, 145 years, which is uh, exceptional. And the growth that we're seeing now across the country in Boston, it's um, the, the firm is only three years old. And I'm looking forward to helping build it in Boston and being part of that. And uh, you have outstanding people all across the firm, outstanding litigators, outstanding lawyers, outstanding people overall. You also had someone that I knew 25 years ago when I first started practicing um, who's now at Womble Bond. And that's made a, that made a big difference because that gave me a level of comfort in terms of knowing where I was going, uh, if I had any doubt. So that was very helpful. Um, I will say it's interesting because you're right. I didn't meet anyone in person um, throughout the process. I think that we've gotten used to, at least I certainly have gotten used to these um, Zoom or we're on WebEx right now. And we've gotten used to these types of meetings and it's worked out okay. Um, I've enjoyed the, I've only been here uh, less than a week. Tomorrow will be a week, uh, but I've enjoyed it. Uh, I've met a lot of people already, which is really nice. People have uh, really reached out. And I think that, um, you know, through the pandemic, I, we're adjusting. We're, we're all adjusting. And I think we've seen that overall, um, something that people who may not have been comfortable with video conference uh, meetings suddenly are a lot more comfortable now with that because it's become, for the last year, really, the principal way that we meet. Um, but what I look forward to more than anything is bringing 
my background, my experience to Womble, to helping Womble grow, certainly in the Northeast and around the country, and helping clients solve problems. I feel like for me, people ask me what I do, and I'm a litigator, and I do a lot of litigation. I've been in federal court, state court, uh, been all around the country, been down in the Caribbean in court. But I like to say I'm a problem solver. And that is um, you help people resolve their issues, resolve their problems. And if you do that, you find that um, you become what I think is important. And that's a counselor, a counselor at law. And that's the way I've, I've always looked at myself, um, and especially now. So I hope to bring some of the skills I've learned as, as mayor to Womble and to clients to help them resolve their issues. And so far, I've been very fortunate uh, in the last six years since I left the mayor's office, and I'm looking forward to, to the future as well. That's great. Well, we're really excited to have you, Angel. I know we've had a, an absolutely outstanding group of intellectual property lawyers in our Boston office uh, for those three years, but it's great to see it expanding to litigation and really growing into a to a real Northeast presence, which is not historically where Womble Bond has been, but we really see a lot of growth, and we're excited to have you be a big part uh, of that growth and, and that office. So, uh, so welcome to Womble Bond. Thanks. It's good to have you here um, and excited to have you part of that uh, part of our New England presence. Um, well, that brings us to the end of the show. Again, thanks for joining us, Angel. Um, I do want to remind our listeners, you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe at our website, Womblebond Dickinson, or on iTunes, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, or Spotify. If you have questions or comments, you can share them with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thank you for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womblebond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer, and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.